welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. On today's episode, I'm talking to Allison Britton Duraco of Morris James LLP in Wilmington, Delaware, where she defends the interests of both public and private employers in a variety of industries, including healthcare, banking, education, and municipalities against the claims of discrimination, retaliation, constitutional claims, contract disputes, misappropriation of employers' property rights, or business opportunities, restrictive covenants, and other aspects of employment relationships in both state and federal courts. Allison also counsels employers concerning strategies for compliance with federal and state laws involving various aspects of employment law aimed at the prevention of claims. Allison advises private and public institutions regarding matters such as benefits, employment, social media and privacy issues, and student-parent issues. Allison frequently serves as a guest speaker on employment and education law topics. So, Allison, welcome to First Talk Compliance. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, let's go ahead and, and start in. So, can you tell me, what does the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, what does that prohibit? So, the ADA is a federal law, um, and it's a very broad law, very broad statute. It has a couple of different provisions. Um, we're, I'm just going to discuss Title I right now, which uh, deals with discrimination of uh, disabled individuals and okay. retaliation. And so it prohibits, um, it makes it unlawful for an employer to discriminate on the basis of a disability against a qualified individual with regards to various terms and conditions of the person's employment. So it deals with, you cannot, an employer cannot discriminate on um, recruitment, advertising, job application procedures, uh, hiring and promotion, um, transfer, termination, layoff, rehiring, uh, with respect to the rate of pay, uh, job assignments and classifications, leaves of absence, fringe benefits, selection and financial support for training, social and recreational activities, um, or any other term, condition, or privilege of employment. Employers can also not limit, segregate, or classify a job applicant or employee in a way that would adversely affect the employment opportunities for an individual on the basis of a disability. And then additionally, uh, the law states that an employer has to make reasonable accommodations for um, people who are disabled under the statute. And uh, there's also a re- anti-retaliation provision in the statute. Okay, so does the ADA apply to all employers, or is it only of certain sizes or certain types of employers? It applies to employers that have more than 15 employees. Uh, That does include private employers, state and local governments, employment agencies, labor organizations, and labor management committees. So it's pretty broad, um, but they would need to have more than 15 employees. 
What about now in healthcare type of facilities where there might be certain type of things required in the job? You know, certain type of job requirements such as, you know, heavy lifting or or certain type of requirements such as that. Yeah, that's one of the considerations in the analysis um, is whether the person has is able to perform the essential functions of their job if they are, in fact, um, a disabled person under the statute. So, and yes, the healthcare organization is one of the, uh, you know, would fall under one of the types of employers that's covered under the ADA um, if they have more than 15 employees. Okay, so then how is a disability defined in the ADA? So, not everyone who has a medical condition is protected by the ADA. You have to meet the definitions that are laid out specifically in the statute. And we could spend hours going over the definition and all of the nuances, um, but for purposes of today, I'm going to give, give a, a summary of it. So in order to be protected, a person has to be qualified for the job and have a disability that's defined under the statute. Um, and a person can show that he or she has a disability in one of three ways. Uh, the first way is a person is disabled if he or she has a, and these are the key words, a physical or mental condition that substantially limits a major like life activity. And some examples quickly of major life activity are walking, talking, seeing, hearing, learning. Um, a second way that a person can, can be um, dis satisfy the definition of disability is if he or she has a history of a disability, such as cancer that's in remission. Um, the third way is a person may be disabled if he uh, or she is believed to have a physical or mental impairment that is not transitory, which uh, lasting or expected to last six months or less and minor, uh, even if he does not have such impairment. Kind of confusing, um, but those are the three definitions. I think the first one that I discussed is the one that I'm going to focus on the most. It's the one that is at least most common that I've seen, um, where a person is claiming that they have a disability because they have a physical or a mental condition that substantially limits a major life activity. The first piece of that is, do they have a physical or mental impairment? And that is defined um, in the regulations under the ADA and it's any physiological disorder or condition, cosmetic disfigurement, or anatomical loss affecting one or more body systems. And it goes on to say such as neurological, musculoskeletal, special sense organs, respiratory, including, uh, including speech organs, cardiovascular, reproductive, digestive, uh, immune, circulatory, lymphatic, skin, and endocrine. It goes on and on. Um, so those are some examples. And then it also says for any mental or physiological disorder, such as an intellectual disability, formally termed uh, mental retardation, an organic brain syndrome, emotional or mental illness, and specific learning disabilities. So it's very broad. It covers the gambit. Um, so that is how the regulations define the physical or mental impairment piece of that. And then the next step is you look at whether it substantially limits a major life activity. Um, and as I said, I gave you a few examples about 
major life activities such as walking, talking, seeing, hearing, or learning. And there are many, many more that are listed. I'll just give you a, a few. Um, caring for oneself, performing manual tasks, seeing, hearing, eating, sleeping, walking, working. Um, but there are more that are listed in the regula um, regulations. And then also, you know, how you have to look at does it substantially limit? Like, how is that defined? So, um, and this is for a person who has an actual disability, the, the definition we're talking about right now. Um, they do look at that person compared to most people in the general population. And then the focus is on, the, from the EEOC's perspective, the focus is on whether discrimination occurred, uh, much less whether the employer has, um, whether the in individual's impairment substantially limits a major life activity. So they're going to focus more on the employer's compliance rather than uh, whether the person actually meets this definition of disability. So, um, you know, in previously, employers would raise the argument um, pretty commonly to say, you know, this person isn't disabled because they don't meet the definition, that because the regulations were changed in 2011 and it, the definition of disability has been broadened, um, typically that argument doesn't fly uh, as well with the EEOC and the courts. So what should an employer do when an employee requests an accommodation? So the ADA requires that an employer provide a reasonable accommodation to an employee or a job applicant with a disability unless doing so would cause significant difficulty or expense for the employer, which is considered an undue hardship. And, in, and a reasonable accommodation is any change in the work environment or in the way things that are way things are usually done to help a person with a disability apply for the job, perform the duties of a job, or enjoy the benefits and privileges of employment. Um, I'm going to give you a few examples of reasonable accommodations just to get an idea, and then we can go more into the question as what should an employer do. But uh, some reasonable accommodations might include, and this depends on the circumstance for, for the employer, uh, making the workplace accessible for wheelchair users, providing a reader or interpreter for someone who's blind or hearing impaired, making existing facilities used by employees readily accessible, um, which kind of is covered with the, the wheelchair, but there might be other ways, uh, job restructuring, modifying work schedules, reassignment to a vacant position. Um, and so basically, the way that this is seen is reasonable accommodations are adjustments or modifications that the employer provides to someone with a disability so that they can be um, equal with the other employees so that they can enjoy equal op employment opportunities. And so it does vary depending on the need of the individual. Um, and it's not all, you know, it's not going to be the same in any, in any circumstance. But the main takeaway is that the employer has to engage in the interactive process when an employee asks for a reasonable accommodation. And that's where a lot of employers um, have some difficulty with claims um, for failing to engage in that process, in, in the interactive process, 
when a request is made by an employee. And the employee doesn't have to, you know, say some sort of magic words. They don't have to put it in writing. Um, so, you know, be the employer should be aware that if, if a request comes up, that that, that should an interactive um, conversation about what is reasonable, what accommodations are necessary, uh, needs to happen under the statute. The other thing is the employer, you know, not every request is reasonable. So just because a, an individual asks for a specific accommodation, the employer needs to engage in that interactive process to find out what the needs are of the employee and maybe they don't give them that exact thing that they're asking for, but something slightly different that meets the needs of the employee. That's fine. Um, doesn't have to be the exact thing that they're requesting. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Allison Britton Duraco of Morris James LLP. So, Allison, I have a question. Are there any defenses for an employer when an employee is asking for an accommodation that seems or is unreasonable? Yes, uh, there's the undue, undue hardship defense that an employer can raise. Um, an employer doesn't have to provide an accommodation if doing so would cause undue hardship. Uh, and an undue hardship means that the accommodation would be too difficult or too expensive to provide in light of the employer's size, financial resources, and the needs of the business. Uh, an employer may not refuse to provide an accommodation just because it involves some cost, but it, it can definitely take into consideration, you know, it's, if it's a small business, uh, the financial resources um, aren't enough to pay for something that is going to be a significant cost. And as I said before, the employer doesn't have to provide the exact accommodation that the employee or job applicant wants. So if there's a request for a certain accommodation, the employer should engage in that interactive process. And there may be something, a less expensive uh, kind of accommodation that can meet the needs of the employee. There's another uh, defense that can be raised by the employer, and that's called the direct threat defense. It's not as common, at least in my practice, I haven't seen it very uh, brought up as much, but if an individual uh, employee or applicant poses a direct threat to the health or safety of other individuals in the workplace, um, that's an, another defense that can be raised. I also see the argument um, on the employer's side, not necessarily just for a reasonable accommodation request, but um, as a total with these claims, uh, a disability claim would be that the employee can't meet the essential functions of his or her job. And that's something that um, the employee does need to be able to meet the essential functions of the job. And so they will look to the job description. That seems like a kind of difficult question sometimes, right? That could be, I don't know, sticky wicket occasionally, right? That Yeah. That could come up with uh, occasional, I would assume, lawsuits where uh, you would come in, I would assume, right? Yeah. I mean, we lit litigate that issue uh, many times, and we've also, you know, had that discussion with employers on the counseling side of this. You know, prior to a claim being filed, we do 
tell our clients, if you have a sticky situation arising with an employee who's making a request for a reasonable accommodation or making some kind of a claim, you know, get us involved early on and maybe we can prevent some kind of a violation, walk you through it, give some advice, because there is some analysis that goes through with what are the job functions, can the person perform the essential functions of the job, and those kinds of things. And there are things that the employer can do. And we can we can discuss later, too, with, res- with respect to medical examinations. Okay. Well, actually, so... So leading into that, can an employer require an applicant or an employee to have a medical examination? Yes, they can. Um, There are certain restrictions on that. So to start out, pre-employment, after a job is offered to an applicant, uh, the law does allow an employer to condition the job offer on the applicant answering certain medical questions or successfully passing a medical exam but only if the new employee, if all the new employees are in the same boat, basically, that they have to also do the same thing. And an employer can make pre-employment inquiries into the ability of an applicant to perform job-related functions and may ask an applicant to describe or to demonstrate how, with or without a reasonable accommodation, the applicant will be able to perform job-related functions. So with respect to during employment, once a person's hired and has started to work, an employer generally can only ask for medical questions or to require a medical exam if the employer needs medical documentation to support an employee's request for an accommodation, or if the employer believes that an employee is not able to perform a job successfully or safely because of a medical condition. So that, that those are the kinds of uh, situations that may arise during employment, and yes, the employee, the employer can request medical documentation at that time. Uh, but the information may only be provided to the employee's immediate supervisor and first aid and safety personnel if the disability may require emergency treatment. And a common mistake that employers make is that the records are not properly maintained. They do have to be, medical records and files need to be treated as confidential and separate, maintained separately. Right. And how does that figure in with with HIPAA? As far as um, if an employer asks for the information and that information Mm -hmm. is protected, I guess it is protected by HIPAA, but the employee would be signing off on it, I guess, consenting to it. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, then what are a few common mistakes that employers make on employment applications or in job interviews? These are, for example, an employer cannot ask a job applicant to answer medical questions or take a medical exam before extending a job offer. So I was discussing after um, you, the employer makes a job offer, but they can't do that before, um, and cannot ask job applicants if they have a disability or about the nature of an obvi- obvious disability that a person has. There are also some just questions that we've commonly seen that are can be very problematic for employers. Uh, these are some of the questions. Have you ever been treated for any of the following conditions or diseases. And then they'll list 
make a list of diseases and conditions. Can't do that. Please list any conditions or diseases for which you've been treated in the past two years. Can't do that. How's your health? Can't ask that. Have you ever <laughs> been hospitalized? Have you ever been treated by a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Have you ever been treated for a, a mental condition? Have you suffered from a major illness in the past two years? How many days were you absent from work because of an illness during the last year? Uh, are you taking any prescribed drugs? Have you been treated for drug addiction or alcoholism? Have you filed any workers' comp claims? But, as I said previously, an employer can ask pre-employment questions about the ability of the applicant to perform job-related functions. So that um, those are the main examples. Got it. Very good. Okay, so, so Allison, what should an employer do when they're faced with a claim based on the ADA? So in order for an employee to make a claim, the employee will file a charge of discrimination with the EEOC or with the State Department of Labor. And at that point, the employer will see, receive notice of that. And that can be filed by a person who applied for a job with the employer or an employee, a current employee or a former employee. And the employee would need to do that within 300 days of the incident of discrimination. Once the employer, the employer will receive notice of the charge of discrimination and then will have an opportunity to respond to that. And that's typically where, you know, we are involved um, representing the employer. We do help the employer respond, submit a what's called a position statement, basically outlining what the defenses are of the employer and detailing you know, what happened and what the employer side of the story is. And with the EEOC, you also do have an opportunity to mediate um, and try to come to some resolution with the individual. Uh, um, you know, we do commonly see also retaliation uh, charges brought against employers. So say an employee goes to the employer and says, I would like to have a reasonable accommodation in the form of this, okay? And the say the it works out and they're accommodated, but now that employee feels like they're being retaliated against because they because they asked for an accommodation or because they they made some kind of a claim of discrimination um, on the basis of their disability. That's something that can be included in the employee's charge of discrimination. They can bring a claim against the employer for retaliating against them, for engaging in protected activity. So uh, we do help the employer respond to that to go through the process with the EEOC. At the end of that process, the, um, the EEOC will determine whether the employee gets a for-calls finding or a no-calls finding, regardless of how they decide the case the employee gets a notice of a right to sue, and then they ha are, have the ability then to file a claim in federal court, um, making allegations under the ADA. Then at that point, the um, employer would have to defend itself in federal court. So how are essential job functions determined? So essential functions are the basic job duties that an employee must be able to perform with or without a reasonable accommodation. 
And in these situations, the employer needs to carefully examine each job to determine the which actual functions or tasks are essential to the performance. It's not just all of them, it's the ones that are essential. So um, some factors to consider uh, in determining if a function is essential include whether the reason the position exists is to perform that function, uh, the number of other employees available to perform the function or among whom the performance of the function can be distributed, and the degree of expertise or skill required to perform the function. A written job description, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is very helpful um, when, especially, you know, if it's on a job posting or something like that, if a person's interviewing for a job, um, those are all things that the EEOC will consider if it gets to that point when they're looking at the essential functions of a job. Um, the EEOC will also consider um, the actual work experience of present or past employees in the job, the time spent performing a particular function, the consequences of not requiring that an employee perform a function, and the terms of a collective bargaining agreement. Those are some examples. Okay, great. Great. Thank you. So, thank you so much, Allison. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.